Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. I am one of your hosts, Rebecca, and, and I'm, I'm joined by... Do you think we'd get this right by now? I am one of your hosts, Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the, the Rebeccas. And we are bringing you guys another episode. And we are today going to talk about stories of like women who kind of kicked butt and took names. And so we wanted to talk about someone that is kind of unknown, but should be better known. And she knows absolutely everybody like she interacts with all the coolest people her name is alice pike barney and she's just so great so we're going to talk about her life and her sort of goings on and her daughters and all of their many love affairs and artistic endeavors and fascinating people that they met yeah, and Alice Pike Barney is a woman that we do talk about on some of our tours, particularly our Dark Side of DuPont Circle Tour, which you'll hear why uh, her scandalous story gets included there. But also on our Embassy <laughs> Road Tour, because her house, her later house, is located right on Sheridan Circle. It still exists today. So it's a building that if you drive up and down at Massachusetts Avenue or you ever stroll up and down Embassy Row, you've probably seen this house. And it's, to me, like all of these incredible homes in the Embassy Row area that are already interesting being embassies, but then often have a really rich, interesting history that predates their time as embassies. So I've really enjoyed, I could almost feel like we could do a whole separate series of like a peek behind the curtain of an embassy's house and its story. So this is a great example of that for me. And it's one that we have gotten to talk about a lot lately because we've been out there doing our Dark Side of DuPont tour a lot for the spooky season. So Plus, she's super fascinating. She's one of those people that knows everybody. And so we're going to drop so many names, you guys, of like, you never heard of Alice Pike Barney, but I guarantee you, you've heard of so many people that she knew. So yeah, so let's, let's bring it down. Let's dig in. Alice Pike Barney. Alice Pike Barney is born in 1857 in Ohio. So she is basically part of this generation of women who grow up nouveau riche. Her father is going to really make his money right around the Civil War. He makes his money in what was considered at the time a slightly less reputable area, which is distilling. So he makes his money primarily in liquor. So after the Civil War, or throughout the Civil War, but especially after, there's this big boom in distilling. And so Alice Pike Barney is the youngest of four children. And so she kind of grows up with the benefit of having only known her parents as super wealthy and been born into the lap of luxury. Her father, in addition to being a distiller, is a big supporter of the arts, and he's really interested in arts philanthropy, and that's something that Alice latches on to immediately as a young person. She gets really interested in the arts. Of course, her parents indulge her. They give her lots of classes and tutors, and she travels to Europe as a teenager, and so she decides, I am going to be an artist. Of course, along the way, she is blossoming as a woman, and at the age of 17, she sets her eyes on a very interesting partner, a very interesting choice, a man named Henry Morton Stanley. Do you know a little bit about Henry Morton Stanley? I know a bit about Henry Morton Stanley. So if you've ever heard the phrase, Dr. Livingston, I presume, that's Henry Morton Stanley. He is a noted sort of explorer. He's most famous for his exploration of Central Africa. And he looks for Dr. David Livingston. And the story about whether he greeted him with Dr. Livingston, I presume, 
may or may not be real, but he searched for the source of the Nile. He also did some work as an agent of King Leopold II of Belgium while King Leopold was trying to do very terrible things to his African colony. But for Alice Pike, uh, he's 33 and she's 17 and her mother doesn't approve because it's a big age difference. He's like basically twice her age. And he's also, he's not older and a banker or like a serious man. He's off on these expeditions and living this kind of wild lifestyle. So there's this kind of disapproval of what is this guy going off and getting himself into these crazy situations? Right. And you can kind of see her mother's perspective. Like she's the 17 year old girl and is he going to take her to Africa? What is happening here i can totally see it also they didn't get all this new money to then marry off their youngest daughter to some guy who's just gonna you know travel the world and be this vagabond right plus i feel like there's this alice is cultured and she's got money and like when you're 17 an explorer is interesting and kind of hot but i feel like alice's mother is like oh honey you're gonna spend a week in a tent and you're gonna want to shoot yourself so maybe this guy (laughs) might not be the right guy for you Also, straight up, we'll put it in the show notes, but if you look at Henry Morton Stanley's mustache, you might understand why Alice found him so appealing. Yes. It is thick. It's pretty epic, yeah. So her mother says, okay, you guys can get married when he comes back from his next expedition to Africa. So this isn't isn't like he's going off for a few weeks. Back in this day, this was like... A year to two years. This isn't like a two, like a 36 hour plane ride. This is like months on a boat and then doing God knows what for who knows how long. And then he'll come back. And there's not really like a postal system. You obviously can't send emails and like text messages. He's going to be basically incommunicado for what turns out to be years. And so Alice is like, okay, we're in love. I can wait. And then you, no one will be surprised to learn that she didn't wait. She decides after he's been gone for three years. And by the way, this is his second fiance he's done this to. There's actually another one before this. Alice Pike decides that, no, not waiting. I'm over it. And she's going to marry someone else who is not in Africa. <laughs> what I love is... Is Henry's literally on a boat called the Lady Alice, a boat named for this woman that he loves. Although you're right, this is the second time he's left a fiance behind. And Alice is, you know, she's a teenager, an older teen. She's got money. She's in the social scene. And, you know, her fiance's out of sight, out of mind. And she's kind of getting attention from other men. And not too surprisingly, one of them is a man named Albert Barney. He is a railway industrialist, so he's made his money in the railroads. He's a very serious man with serious money, so her parents like the attention from him. And while he is seven years older than her, he's definitely closer to her age than Henry Morton Stanley. And so eventually, as you can probably guess, Alice is going to marry Albert Barney and Henry Morton Stanley will simply be a memory. Yes, he gets sort of shunted off. And there are unsubstantiated rumors, but these are stories that have been, that were printed at the time and continue to sort of be circulated because she and Albert have a very short engagement. They get married very quickly, which happened a lot in that era because so many of these marriages were business arrangements amongst the moneyed pairs and all that. But they get married really quick and there are quite a lot of rumors that they have to get married because she is pregnant 
with Albert Barney's child. So perhaps she got really tired of being alone and Albert gave her the right kind of attention. They do get married quickly. They do have their first daughter very quickly. So it is possible that she might have been, although it's also likely that they were just ready to get started. And so they got married quick. Very scandalous. I love it. Plus, I feel like there's a shelf life to the whole, like, my fiance's in Africa. I feel like you get six months out of that, and then it's like, okay, my fiance. Your fiance in Africa is not going to keep you warm at night. Right, exactly. The thing about Albert Barney is that while he is a better match to Alice when it comes to maybe class and wealth, and certainly the kind of match her parents wanted to make, he's also a Midwesterner, so they kind of come from the same stock. He's a very serious dude. He's very straight-laced. He has made this money, and he wants to climb the social ladder. And so he is not a fan of Alice's more bohemian interests. And that includes all of her artistic endeavors. He does not see a woman's place pursuing art seriously. You know, if she wants to do little watercolors or do little things in her free time, that's one thing. But he doesn't want her taking art classes, certainly doesn't want her uh, gallivanting around with wild artists. And he basically puts stop to all of that. He wants a serious wife and a serious mother to his children. And so she has to kind of like, she you know, puts aside her youthful interests in art. She puts aside these things and she really tries. She tries for a few years to just be this boring old housewife, which is just not in her nature. She does have two daughters, tries to kind of raise them. So she's focusing on that. But then in 1882, she is in New York and she meets somebody. Oh my, <laughs> does she? She meets Oscar. Oscar Wilde, which imagine being just meeting Oscar Wilde on the street in New York. It's amazing to me. So she's at a hotel and he is speaking and they end up having conversation and somehow, and it isn't clear to me, maybe it's clear to you, but I didn't did a lot of read digging on this. It isn't exactly clear to me how, but he ends up spending the day with her and her daughter. You sort of get the feeling Oscar Wilde is in America on a speaking tour. At this point, he's a pretty well-known figure in the United States, very flamboyant, this sort of bon vivant figure. He's at the New York Long Beach Hotel. She is at the same hotel. And I think they get introduced is what I sort of sounds like. But then she ends up inviting him to spend the day with her and the girls at the beach. So she and Oscar Wilde, her new friend, spend a day at the beach and they get to talking and sharing. And Alice reveals how much she used to love art, the art study she did as a young woman, and how she misses it. And Oscar Wilde's perspective is basically, if you're an artist, you need to be an artist. You need to pursue it no matter what. Don't let your husband, your parents, your children control your destiny. He's a creative person and he sort of tells her, you've got to put that above all else. And Alice says through the rest of her life that this is the moment, the moment her life changes. And she kind of decides, you know, and she's got certainly the privilege to do this. She has wealth uh, and access. So she's like, yeah, if I want to be an artist, I'm going to go be an artist. And poor Albert, that's kind of the end of his control of the situation. Yep. <laughs> he had like five good years. Yeah, he had a few good years and then it just goes horribly awry. And I feel like they're just incredibly mismatched. And he's got this wife who like is bohemian and like a budding feminist and wants to paint, is friends with Oscar Wilde. And he's like... <sighs> 
I want to be on the social register. This is not what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, literally all he cares about is where are we in the social stratosphere? You know, he's busy trying to get them connected to the right vacation homes and the right sort of things and all the things you're supposed to have if you're an industrialist at the end of the 19th century. And she's dabbling with Oscar Wilde, a gay man. That's so different. They're so different, she yes. and Albert. And so this event, this 1882 conversation is going to change the course of Alice's life. And she basically decides, I'm going to do what I want. I brought money into this marriage. I have my thoughts, my own thoughts and ideas. She's the youngest child. So she's got that baby child energy. And she's like, I'm leaving. She tells Albert, I'm going to France. She wants to study art and she takes her daughters with her and she has her daughters schooled at a French boarding school run by a very well-known feminist educator. So she's very much having her daughters raised with a whole new mentality. She gives them a lot of independence. She gives them a lot of opportunity to pursue their own creative endeavors as well. And while they're in boarding school, she's traveling all around France, studying art. She's taking classes. She's going to salons. She studies under James Whistler, the famous American painter. When he first opens his art school in Paris, she's one of his very first students. So she's doing this for like the next pretty much 20 years of her life, just living most of the year in Europe. Then she comes back to the United States occasionally. When Albert needs a hostess, she comes back. When he's setting up their vacation home in Bar Harbor or setting up one of their houses in D.C., she comes and decorates. And then she goes back to France to pursue her art because that's where the art world is. And I think that's so incredible. It's a very modern marriage, despite what Albert Barney wanted out of their marriage. Yeah, I don't think this is the marriage that he wanted. I think this is very much Alice was like, this is who, what's happening. Take it or leave it. And I'm going to name drop a little here for you. So she brings her daughters to the feminist educator, Marie Suvestra. Becca, do you have any idea who Marie Suvestra's prize pupil is? This is a name you'll absolutely know. Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt, 100%. I've seen, I've seen the Ken Burns documentary. <laughs> I love it. Um, she also studies painting with Carolus Duran, uh, who is a famous artist. And his most famous pupil was John Singer Sargent. So again, a name everyone will know. She studies with James McNeil Whistler. She's meeting all the coolest people. And she has this salon in Paris. And basically, the way I tell this in the tour, like poor Albert kind of gets left behind. He's stodgy and boring in, in Washington. And she's living the high life in Paris with her daughters. Why would you come home? Yeah, it's very much like she's totally connected to this expat community. She sees herself as a European really. And then she just comes back every now and then. And so she's got two daughters that are basically being raised by a single parent in Europe or being raised in a boarding school by this feminist educator. And so the influence her two daughters are getting is very female forward and very female centric. Now, I will mention just from the D.C. perspective, she and Albert do set up a home in D.C. in 1889. Their first home together was right off of Scott Circle. So off of Rhode Island Avenue, just off of Scott Circle. Now it's home to the University of California's Washington Center. So the house still exists. So she does come and spend some time in D.C., but immediately, as soon as she can, she goes back to France. Because from Alice's perspective, America doesn't really have culture. Culture is Europe. And her daughters kind of agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're a European, you might agree with that now. So we've mentioned her daughters. There's Natalie, her oldest daughter, and then Laura. Natalie was born on Halloween in 1876. 
Natalie would make a big deal about being a Halloween baby her whole life. She feels very connected to spiritualism. She feels very connected to the darker side of things. So she is like a little Halloween baby. She's being raised in the feminist utopia in France. And she is a poet. She's not an artist like her mother, but she's a writer and a poet. And as a young woman, she publishes a short book of poetry. And I will now tell you the title and I will butcher it in French. So apologies in advance. <laughs> Quelques portraits sonnets de femmes. Some portrait sonnets of women. Now this sounds very quaint, doesn't it? Some portrait sonnets of women. So she's going to publish this book of poetry and she asked her mother to do illustrations to go along with this book of poetry. And Alice agrees. She's very excited and very proud. What Alice doesn't realize when she agrees initially is that this little portrait sonnets of women is actually erotic lesbian poetry. <laughs> now it's, um, you know, it is somewhat subtle in its presentation of sapphic love, but this is very much a provocative book. And the yeah. illustrations that Natalie wants are very provocative images of women. She wants things that are very sexualized, not quite pornographic, but things that are very bold in their presentation of female sexuality. And Natalie has picked out models for her mother to paint. And what Alice doesn't know initially is these models are also Natalie's lovers because Natalie is gay, has been living pretty openly as a lesbian at this point. She is also polyamorous and non-monogamous and she will remain as such for most of her life. Natalie would later be called Empress of the Lesbians, which is an incredible title to have. Gonna get it on a t-shirt. Completely agree. That's so great. Um, I listen. If you're going to write a book of erotic poetry, that's fine. More power to you. My question is: Do you really want your mother to do the like illustrations? This just seems a little bit weird to me. But you know, it's fine. Yeah, Natalie is a whole trip all on herself. She meets everybody, and all of the beautiful women and she has affairs with all of them. She classifies her lovers in like three tiers based on whether they were just met each other or whether they were in a like long-term romance. But she basically like starts dating people and tells them, I don't expect monogamy. So don't expect it from me. Um, and so she's, she's like a whole trip. She's fantastic. And Albert her dad, Alice's husband, is going to find out about this in a newspaper article titled Sappho Sings in Washington. This was in a newspaper called the Washington Inquirer. And I just love the idea of some stodgy sitting room and Albert Barney's flipping through. And then it says Sappho Sings in Washington. I kind of have to feel for Albert Barney in this moment. He's going to jump on a boat to Paris to like freak out and so try to sort this out. Albert Barney wants a nice wife and nice children and be on the social register. And it's bad enough that his wife is a, an artist, but now his daughter's a lesbian. And he, I feel like he just isn't, he doesn't quite know what to do with this. And he's convinced this is going to ruin them socially. He always had been a little upset. Alice Pike Barney's grand, one of her grandparents was Jewish. And so he's upset about that. And he just very seems very stick up, you know, stick in the mud that Albert. Uh, and so he's just going to basically run to their house in Bar Harbor, Maine and 
stay there for a while and kind of suck his thumb. And there's definitely, if you dig into this a little bit, the way Alice talks about this period of her life differently at different points. And it sounds like Alice didn't really know initially the extent to which Natalie was out and open about her sexuality. And Alice, according to friends, actually was pretty shocked because it was shocking. I mean, this is the late 1880s, early 1890s. It's still a pretty provocative life choice to be living out, even in Europe. And Alice later in life seems to embrace her daughter and talks more open-minded about the past. But it certainly seems like in the moment, Alice is sort of a little like, oh, this is maybe a bridge too far. So it's something even Alice has to grapple with as much as she has this kind of new woman mentality. This is a lot. Now, of course, yeah, poor Albert. He has to go to France. He basically tries to get everyone to come home. Natalie refuses. Natalie will not leave. Alice, sort of trying to be the good wife, does go back and hides out at Bar Harbor. But there is sort of this worry that this is going to ruin them. But luckily, Washington, D.C.'s first social register comes out, and Albert Barney and his, his ladies are included. So it doesn't ruin the family, but there is a ton of gossip. And if you look at papers from newspapers from this period, there's a lot of gossip about the family, and a, there's all this double, double entendre when it comes to Natalie Barney and her extracurricular activities. And Natalie Barney did not care about any of this gossip happening in Washington. She was in Paris. And that was where she wanted to be. Yeah, two of my favorite Natalie Barney quotes. One is, I have perhaps gotten more out of life than it possesses, which is kind of great. And her other is, there's nothing like a scandal to get rid of a nuisance. So this sort of idea that a scandal is a good way to get rid of the people who are bugging you, which I think she meant her father often. I also read that she would refer to like nuisance as the men who would pursue her because she was very pretty in a con- you know conventional way. And of course, men are going to approach her and want to like date her, or marry her or whatever. And she's obviously not interested. Uh, and so I feel like that's all she I read that that's also what she would refer to her male suitors as nuisances. And so the scandal is a good way to get rid of them as well. too long after this whole scandal Albert Barney dies he just he couldn't he couldn't take it it was too much so he dies right at the beginning of the turn of the century and this leaves Alice a widow and Alice had been making plans to move the family home in DC she wanted to build a new house she wanted something that was more suited to her and now with Albert gone she basically has free reign She hires an architect, a man named Waddy Wood. If you spend time in the DuPont Circle, Embassy Row area, many of the buildings today are done by Waddy Wood. That includes the Woodrow Wilson House, for example, is one of them. One of the pieces of the Jeff Bezos House. Lots of embassies. But Waddy Wood's style is very traditional, classical architecture, as it were. And Alice hires him, but not to do his thing. She says, this is my vision, and I want you to implement it. So if you are ever at Sheridan Circle, you will see a house that looks almost like a Spanish mission style. Like it's very unique. It looks like something you might see in California, not something you'd see in Washington, D.C. in 1902, which is when the house was completed. It's one of a kind, and it's just like Alice. She tells Waddy Wood that she does not intend this house to be for living. It's not going to just be for like a society woman's house. She wants it to be a house for play. 
she sees this as a performance space in and of itself, which I think is really interesting. She knows that this is going to be an artistic center for her. I love that she also sees architecture as performance art ahead of her time in so many ways. She kind of envisions this house as it's almost like Gaudi, you know, like the house itself, the space itself is making a statement about the person that lives in it. I think think that's so like forward thinking of her. And at this point, when she moves into this house in 1902, she decides Washington, D.C. has no culture. But I am cultured, and I will bring culture to Washington, D.C. So she's like, I am going to turn this stodgy old neighborhood, which we think of this part of town, Sheridan Circle, Embassy Row, as Embassy Row today, but it wasn't that in the early 1900s. Massachusetts Avenue was Millionaire's Row. This was still a very elite, insular neighborhood of some of the richest people on the East Coast, frankly, certainly some of the richest people in D.C. And so it wasn't always necessarily maybe the most forward thinking or the most modern part of the city. And so she's like, I'm going to bring artists. I'm going to bring opera singers and actors and actresses and poets and people doing experimental modern dance. And I'm going to bring these people together and I'm going to throw parties and I'm going to give them performance opportunities. And so she really does liven up a neighborhood that is kind of old fashioned or certainly sort of traditional. I feel like in so many ways, Alice Pike Barney is that person we all have on our street that's just a little bit more alive than the rest of us. Like she just wears purple and paints and is extravagant. And that is the impression that I get uh, of Alice Pike Barney. She's just so fantastic. And, you know, she's having these sort of wild-ish bohemian parties. She's entertaining all sorts of people. She's bringing people like Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Anna Pavlova, the famous ballet dancer. So she's bringing together a lot of different kinds of people. And she's bringing a lot of people who don't have famous names. Just about any acting troupe or wannabe singer or artist could come to her and she would put people up. She'd give them space to work. So it's really almost like a commune in some ways. And she creates. She creates so much at this point. She had been working pretty steadily from the time she meets Oscar Wilde. But starting in the early 1900s, I mean, she's writing over 50 plays. She writes an unpublished biography, which I would kill to read. Like, I want to read her version of her life. And then I love that you mentioned that she was sort of thinking about houses or architecture-like performance space because she gets really interested in interior design. And that's something that she also picks up from Whistler, who she had studied under. We think of Whistler primarily as a painter, but he did really interesting interiors in his home. If you've ever been to the Freer Gallery and seen the Peacock Room, That's Whistler, and she's inspired by that sort of thing where you can integrate art into your living space. It doesn't just have to be a piece that hangs on the wall. You can make the entire room a work of art. So she's just kind of, I love that her creativity just continues to expand and grow later in life that she doesn't wilt away. And then when she gets to age 53, she's been widowed for a while. And she decides to take a second husband. Love this so much. And it's a bit of a May-December romance. A little. (laughs) It's more like a, like, March to, like, December romance. January to December. She, at 53, marries an actor named Christian Hemmick. He is 23, so there's a 30-year age difference. And 
unfortunately, I think this goes the way that these things often go, is he will be a big spender and help her spend through a good portion of the money that she has. She spends plenty of it on her own, but their marriage is going to exponentially increase her spending, and she's going to find herself kind of running low on cash flow. Yeah, their marriage doesn't last super long. It only lasts like seven or eight years, I think. He might not have been the best choice, I feel like, for her. But, and I can only imagine in like sort of very proper and staid Washington, this wild widow is going to take a much younger husband. And like when men do this, no one blats an eyelash, but I bet she made all sorts of headlines. And I bet this was a big deal at the time. She has shows at the Corcoran Gallery. She's inventive and she's going to patent a couple of inventions. She's interested in opera. Like she really does bring a lot of culture to Washington, D.C., which is, I think, super great. Yeah, she, much like her father before her, is primarily interested in being a booster of the arts and a philanthropist for the arts. And she is not only a participant in her own artwork, but really, really interested in seeding money around to the the arts culture throughout D.C. And there are plenty of places that exist in D.C. today where Alice Pike Barney was giving money in the first half of the 20th century, uh, lots of theaters and organizations. Sadly, in 1931, she is going to pass away. She will leave her house to her daughters, her daughters Natalie and Laura. And we didn't talk too much about Laura, but Laura is really fascinating. Obviously, Natalie, I think, overshadows her because Natalie's life is so big and phenomenal. But Laura Barney also gets educated right in this sort of feminist mentality. She's going to be exceptionally well-traveled. And she is going to find herself really interested in the Baha'i faith. And Laura Barney today is really credited with popularizing the Baha'i faith in the United States. She brings a lot of this teaching to the U.S. She spends a lot of time trying to promote it here. She's also involved in the International Council of Women, and she represents the ICW at the League of Nations and at the United Nations. So she is going to really try to push for women's rights. She serves as an, an ambulance driver in World War One, which is really cool. She helps establish the first children's hospital in Avignon, France. She's been awarded all these French awards for her philanthropy in France. So as cool as Natalie is and as much as Natalie sort of has, I think, the more famous connections. Alice had two daughters that really were, much like Alice was this new woman, I think Natalie and Laura represent the 20th century woman, right? The woman who's going to live her life and do her things and, and, and make a mark on the world. Alice leaves the house to her daughters basically with the intention of wanting them to continue to use it as an artistic space. So whether it's salons or events, but the girls keep the house until 1961. And at that point, they decide to donate it. And they donate it, which was, this was part of Alice's wish, to the Smithsonian Institution. So the idea is that this is going to be part of the Smithsonian collection. She wants it to be an art museum or like an artistic studio so the Smithsonian could have art classes and things. Smithsonian accepts the gift. They have to do some work to the house. But they opened it in 1976 as part of the American Art Museum. 600 paintings and 1,500 pieces of decorative art came along with the house, almost all of them created or owned by the Barney women. So you could, back in the day, actually visit the inside of this house, see this artwork, but the Smithsonian just could not afford to upkeep it. This expensive 1902-era house just was not practical for upkeeping. And so despite lots of different groups and efforts, 
1999, this was sold, and it was bought by Latvia. So it is now the embassy of Latvia. If you visit the house, though, outside, there are markers that denote its time as the Alice Pike Barney studio house. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. The Latvians have this really neat embassy. They have the building next door. And they had a poster up in front of Alice Pike Barney's house for the longest time about how they love reading. And that just makes me love the Latvians so very much. Yeah, they actually have a little lending library right now where you can borrow little books about Latvia. So great. So cute. But yeah, Alice McBurney is fantastic. And I know that you want to tell the story about Alice Roosevelt. Like, so I'm going to let you. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, Alice was connected to so many of the people that we have talked about on this podcast. Alice Roosevelt Longworth, Evelyn Walsh McLean. You know, these are all women that were living in this part of D.C. at the same time. They were going to parties together. They were interacting. And so it's so amazing to think about. You could have been in a room with all of these women in one place. It just sort of blows my mind. But if you've not heard our podcast on Alice Roosevelt Longworth, you need to go back and listen to it. She was a whole mood in and of herself. But Alice was very, Alice Pike Barney was quite friendly with Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She actually painted Alice Roosevelt Longworth. So there are paintings of Roosevelt Alice done by Alice Pike Barney. They had a friend, Margaret Cassini, who was the daughter of an ambassador who ran very tight with Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And Alice Roosevelt Longworth, later in life, revealed to a reporter that one day she and Margaret Cassini were walking along the grounds of the White House. And Marguerite was very upset because she had heard that Alice Pike Barney was saying something very nasty about Alice Roosevelt Longworth. And of course, Alice Roosevelt Longworth's like, don't have anything nice to say. Tell me. Tell me right now. And Marguerite says, she says that she's in love with you. In love, in love, like romantic love. And Alice Roosevelt Longworth says she thinks Marguerite wants her to be angry about this, that this is a a bad thing or a disgusting thing. And Alice Roosevelt Longworth just says, well, I don't think that's nasty at all. Why, I think that's lovely. It's very nice. So Alice Roosevelt Longworth is allegedly very flattered by this implication that Alice Pike Barney may have had a romantic interest in her. I don't know how much truth there is to Margaret Cassini's gossip because we certainly have evidence that Alice Pike Barney was very interested in men. Not to say she wasn't also perhaps interested in Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Alice will later on say, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, that it was just a time where everybody was in love with everybody. So one of the great things about the story is Alice Roosevelt Longworth is completely um, unplussed by the alleged, the allegations that Alice Pike Barney might have a crush on her. Now, in terms of Alice's legacy, as we mentioned before, you can still see the house today. It's the Embassy of Latvia. It's right on Sheridan Circle. Uh, There is a marker outside to honor her. You can find a lot of Alice Pike Barney's artwork. She was pretty prolific in terms of her output. She painted a lot of her friends and colleagues. So a lot of the names that we've dropped today, Alice actually painted. She also created many, many paintings of her own. And her paintings have ended up all over American art museums. You can see them in the Smithsonian American Art Museum, Brooklyn Museum, the Barnes Museum in Philadelphia, lots and lots of other museums throughout the East Coast. And I will link in the show notes to a couple of my favorite places to see Alice's work. I also 
think Natalie Clifford Barney, her daughter, has a really interesting legacy as well. Natalie's work had sort of been forgotten for a while, I think, in the way that women's contributions can often be sort of overshadowed. But then in 1979, there was a feminist artist named Judy Chicago who created a work called The Dinner Party. The Dinner Party was an installation that's sort of considered now like the first really big feminist artwork. And it really is supposed to be a symbolic representation of important women and world civilization. And there are 39 place settings for 39 interesting women. And she included Natalie Barney. And that has really helped. That was sort of the catalyst for bringing Natalie Barney back into the conversation. So uh, we sort of did this podcast saying we were going to talk about Alice Pike Barney. But It's really her and her daughters and her legacy. So another great example of some of the wild women who live in the DuPont Circle Embassy Row neighborhood. If you want to see any of these buildings up close and hear more about these stories, you should definitely come out and take either our Embassy Row tour or our Dark Side of DuPont Circle tour. We want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. We love all of our supporters. If you are listening to this, be sure to like, subscribe, rate us. Uh, You can send us feedback, tourguidetellall at gmail.com, or follow us on social media. We're at tourguidetellall on Facebook and Instagram and at tourguidetell on Twitter. We definitely want to give a huge shout out to our patrons. Without our patrons, this podcast is not possible. You guys truly keep us going. The tourism industry has been hit so hard this year. Your contributions really allow us to do this podcast and to keep keep the company going. So we're so appreciative. Uh, our patrons get special goodies, behind the scenes information, all kinds of fun stuff. So if you're not a patron, you can join for as little as just a couple dollars a month. Finally, the holidays are coming up and you might be getting ready to do your holiday shopping. Why not shop small, support your local podcast and check out our merch shop. We have some great t-shirts, stickers, tote bags, all sorts of wonderful goodies. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All, or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.